0: cities are really uh, sustainable uh, at a certain scale.
1: Welcome to Drexel's 10,000 Hours podcast. Our goal is to mine the stories behind our region's innovators, inventors, and thought creators. We'll be talking to experts in subjects from fashion to neuroscience to find out where their passion for work and inspiration for ideas comes from. I'm your host, Maurice Boehner. Jeffrey Beard is an associate clinical professor in Drexel University's College of Engineering. His experience in the building industry has informed his current interest in sustainable construction and green building. He's got opinions on everything from how to make your row home more environmentally friendly to the benefits of the Green New Deal. And we're excited to hear them. Dr. Beard, thank you for coming. You're welcome. So so I'm excited. I have a lot of questions for you. Um, So here at the uh, 10,000 Hours, we, uh, we believe that story drives everything. And so I like asking people about where they started. So where'd you grow up? What did your parents do? And did that have any imprinting on what you do today? Oh,
0: a huge imprint. Huge imprint. I grew up in Southern Maryland where the Potomac River meets the Chesapeake Bay. And my father had come there in 1949, uh, and a little bit later my mother, they were already married at the time. But My parents are actually from Buffalo, New York, of all places, and the Lincoln, my middle name is Lincoln. My father's older brother was a pilot in World War II and died in a training accident, so I was named after my uncle
1: that's, that's an amazing. That's where the story. lincoln
0: comes from not from the president
1: Where there but anyway were there a lot of people in your family in the military uh, three of the sons were
0: all serving in the war and my, my dad is the only one left that's a retired uh, engineer but he's in a nursing home but uh anyway my my parents uh, bringing me to maryland my, my father came out of the war and got out of the war and was a uh, radar engineer Electronics, but not uh, high voltage, <laughs> low voltage. Low voltage. Low voltage engineering. And my mother, an artist, who went to the University of Buffalo for a couple of years, had an associate's degree. So the engineer and the artist. And my dad gets uh, transferred by a big uh, engineering, co- uh, big uh, radio company, Emerson Electric,
1: to know, it, know it well. <laughs> to
0: Patuxent River to run the uh, radar range. For uh, it's one of the five test pilot schools in the world. And so I was born there in Southern Maryland, where my dad's working as an engineer, and my mother, an amateur artist who kept winning prizes at the local- uh, A little more than amateur. shows. And uh, yeah, they finally told her at the county fair, where she always took home a blue ribbon, that you can't enter anymore because you're a professional, not an amateur. (laughs) So the two of them uh, made a good life there, and that's where I grew up.
1: Did you go to work with your dad? Did you see what he did on a day-to-day basis?
0: Yes, my my dad was, uh, as an engineer, you're always curious about things and you're always building. And my mother would sketch something that out in her, in her artist uh, approach, and my dad would build it. So whether it was an addition to the house, a swimming pool, uh, a sailboat, uh, all those things, uh, my dad, during his... And, of course, I tagged along and became, you know, kind of one of his protégés. He had three
1: sons and a daughter, but <laughs> I was the one who went into building. So and what was your interest as a child and as a young man?
0: I actually uh, went away to school and being from a family of engineers, my older brother is an aerospace engineer, and my dad being an electronic engineer, I was in my rebellious uh, years— And decided I wasn't going to follow my brother to University of Virginia, to engineering school. And I went to a different state. I actually went to Rutgers in New Jersey from Maryland because my dad said to his sons, you need to get out of state to have a different cultural experience. Wise man, uh, which we did. And I actually majored in journalism with minors in political science and economics. Rutgers didn't have... An architectural school, school, which I was most interested in, had engineering school. But uh, I'm actually not an engineer. I'm an architect by training with a focus in project management.
1: So you, you go off to college. There you are at Rutgers. You're majoring in journalism. What did you think at that time you wanted to do with your life? In Southern Maryland, where
0: I grew up, there weren't a lot of jobs. Uh, if you either were connected with the Navy base in some sort of military technical capacity or you were in local business or you were a farmer because you're out in rural America. And uh, I was on the academic track in high school so, uh, and then went to college. To be able to afford spending money, my dad fortunately paid for my tuition as an undergrad, um, I needed to have a job. So I had friends who worked in construction. So I started at age, I guess, 15 or 16, working in construction in
1: the summers. What kinds of jobs were you doing at 15? Is this just hauling things? Just as a laborer, Mm -hmm. just as a basic, yeah, with a shovel in your
0: hand. And, you know, sometimes you were allowed to pound a few nails and... (laughs) <laughs> we eventually got into metal buildings so that became a little more sophisticated. So you handle a spud wrench and wow. and what kinds weld of things, what and kind of, things, kinds of was, things was
1: this construction company building
0: they, they the were time. an interesting firm because they had both a truss plant they built wood trusses in a big old barn that they had adapted and then they started panelizing houses so it was mm-hmm. a early modular building and then eventually went into light commercial and then projects on, the Navy base, building hangars and office buildings and that sort of thing. That's incredible. So I was with them, you know, maybe from age 15 to when I graduated from college, I actually went to work for that company when I wasn't covering local sports as the sports editor of the local paper. So, so <laughs> the, the journalism didn't pay hardly anything. I loved it, but I realized after three years, four years that <laughs> I would need it. to give it up. How long did you do that? Almost four years,
1: three and a half years. So really, really committed. His oh, his career could have gone a different it, way. It,
0: I, I did that evenings and weekends, and and worked construction, you
1: know, full time as a junior project manager after I got out of college. So, what's the turning point? At what point did you go building things? in the built environment is my real calling.
0: Ah, uh, well, it, it it was rather a circuitous route, mm-hmm. Maurice. So. uh... I married uh, a young woman that I met at Rutgers. Mm-hmm. She had come back from a junior year abroad in France. So she is a French teacher. And I think she was seeking for a way to uh, getting get away from a rather uh, a family that was hugged her way too close, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. She wanted to find her freedom. So she went with me down to Maryland. And she was encouraging me to work in a city where I could find more opportunity. So I went to work for a Fortune 500 steel company four years after graduating, uh, out of Pittsburgh. Big steel <laughs> can, company. Can we name this steel company? Well, uh, you have to realize that all the steel companies in the United States went back bankrupt in the 1970s and 1980s, except one down in Texas. I worked for one that went bankrupt, hmm. called H.H. H. Robertson, yeah. and H.H. H. Robertson is. You know parts of it are still out and operating, mm. still building building components. Uh, uh, formal walls, one of their major products. They had a couple's wall division that did uh, glass and aluminum for skyscrapers. Uh, uh, you know, I still see buildings around the washington, d c. Baltimore area that I worked on. Uh, so but that's when I started really doing the the large scale building.
1: Tell me about your academic in- interest now. What are you sharing with students? Mostly what I've been concentrating
0: in, well, two things. One is uh, building sustainability, facility sustainability, green construction. Um, the other is uh, the construction history side, which I've brought, I have brought—I bring in quite a lot of uh, design and construction law of all things. I'm not a lawyer, but I've always had a fascination with,
1: with law. So I'd love to talk about uh, green design and what it means to you. And where you believe it's going in the world, and how cities can adopt it, huge question there's a
0: lot of details underneath that, so you know green design involves so many different things. it involves everything uh, related to energy and energy cost and energy availability, and involves water and everything having to do with water. Uh, so you know we we could we could start
1: with those two I uh, guess. Uh, if you live in a classic old city like Chicago or Philadelphia, um, where uh, you know there are a lot of people, and we want to convert all of our old infrastructure into something that's greener, more environmentally friendly, where do we start? What are our top three things we can do with our new buildings?
0: There there are so so many challenges, but cities are actually. Uh, except for the availability of food products, cities are really uh, sustainable Mm -hmm. uh, at a certain scale. Um, Let's talk about scale for a second. That's a really interesting kind of an outcome of uh, our course that we have on uh, sustainable construction that I have architects, engineers, and construction management students all taking. And of course, I teach a number of courses in sustainability at the uh, grad level. At Drexel. But uh, one of the conclusions that we come to at the end of the class, based on a lot of data that the students look at, they say, What is a good concentration? What is a good density for a city? What is sustainable over time? If you look at uh, out in the suburbs where there's a house on two acres, that is really not from a sustainable standpoint, <laughs> unless they're growing all their own vegetables. They're definitely under-concentrated, yeah, under yeah, yeah, right. Under-concentrated. <laughs> uh, but you look at the high-rises that some of the you know great engineers and architects have recommended, like Frank Lloyd Wright, let's have the mile-high building, and lots of people in it, you know, and parking lots in between. That is really not sustainable. Yeah. So we go through a lot of data, we look at this, and we say, at what point does a building need an elevator? Uh, You go to Paris, one of the great cities of of the entire world, and there's lots and lots of housing that was built, you know, 400 years ago, 200 years ago, these walk-ups. Right. And they cap out at uh, five and six stories because that's about the number of flights flights that that people people, want to walk. Exactly. You go above that, you start needing an elevator. So. The students come up with a surprising mix. It's not a single number of stories, Mm -hmm. but it's a range. And the range is anywhere from four stories to about 20 stories. So the sweet spot, you would say, is right in between there. 12, 14 stories is really ideal for density. But if you go with these 50-story high-rises one after another, you start overwhelming the space space. And people start feeling a little
1: claustrophobic. So in, in Philadelphia, we used to have a gentleman's agreement not to build buildings larger than William Penn's hat. And it seems <laughs> like we got it right, despite the fact that you know, it was just an agreement around a single building.
0: Uh, most of Philadelphia is at, a, is at a great scale. Right. Great scale. Now, you know, downtowns, yes, you know, we have this kind of transition up to some really tall buildings. You have a nice skyline now. Uh and, and I guess I'm not talking about the, you know, the heavy commercial downtown Understood. for a New York, a Philadelphia, Chicago, uh, but the rest of the city, if if the concentrations can be kept between that four and twenty, then I think will be much more sustainable for the
1: long haul. So, how did you get first become interested in green construction?
0: Actually, it was it was uh, something rather mundane that really caught my attention, Uh, having worked as a project manager for a general contractor, construction manager, and always having to price in dumpsters Hmm. and then seeing what goes in the dumpsters and how many loads of the dumpster gets taken away from the project. Uh, I think me getting into, into the green area really had to do with really very, very wasteful. We're throwing a lot of things away. Not just the packaging, but some of the products themselves. We've ordered all this great structural lumber, you know, and maybe 10% is going right back in the, in the dumpster and nobody's getting use out of it. It's just rotting away.
1: So how can we do better? That, that really is uh, Is there, is there something that you have observed that we can do better at even now? Oh,
0: definitely. Definitely. I think as we design our buildings, We can try to think through uh, how long is this building really being designed for? If it's a public building, it's 50 or 100 years minimum. So let's put in really strong, good products in that building and include those products in those products, things that are very easily recycled. Now, what's easily recycled? Uh, Copper, steel, aluminum, uh, dimensional wood. What is not easily recyclable Uh, fiberglass insulation Um, plastic window frames (laughs) which are all over the place which are really popular Uh, right uh roof shingles i mean there's a lot of things that are just not recyclable at all they they need to go in the landfill now Mm -hmm. we can design differently so we don't have
1: to do that from the start Okay, what are some of the other ideas that you have for individuals who might want to green their own homes? So Philadelphia is the big city of really old houses, most of them row houses built in the 1920s. What can we do? The good news is that most of these row houses
0: have fairly thick walls because of the construction at that time. The problem is, unless the walls are thick masonry, that there's not a lot of mass there. So it's taking off the interior finishes and filling it full of insulation. So you get the good R value. Uh, that, that's, a, that's a really great way to start to save energy. And then removing single pane glass windows, putting in double pane or triple pane, you know, that seals really well. And you stop the drafts. And there's a somewhat newer technology called EIFS, E-I-F-S, Exterior Insulation Finish systems. Yeah. So you have an exterior wall that perhaps is a little unsightly, uh, you know, an old wooden wall that keeps mm-hmm. flaking off. You can put the foam panel on top of that and then a stucco mix over it. And because foam is a very good insulator, uh, you can get uh, much better performance out of your building. And then we talked about roofs. Now, I would say on your roof, if you have enough slope, go with a roof that you can really recycle which would be aluminum or steel. Right. Which That's a 50-year roof if it's installed
1: correctly. Are there some cities that you can identify that with regard to uh, green construction are doing it really well, like better than others?
0: Uh, I guess a couple cities come to mind, the fact that they're maybe blessed with how they're located, where they're located. Mm Um, uh, Boulder, Colorado prides itself in being a green city. So, um, uh, and they've actually cut down on the amount of parking, trying to force people to go on the perimeter and then walk, uh, right. through and they really walk away. And that walkability is one of the great signifiers of whether you're in a sustainable community town right. area or not, you can easily walk. Uh, within a one-mile, two-mile radius. Two-mile gets a little tough for someone who's a little bit challenged, but one mile certainly, and Boulder has really done that. Um, other cities like uh, Portland, Oregon, um, Burlington, Vermont, uh, uh, also blessed by being on body of water and and uh, with good hiking trails and just good management to, to try to lessen the energy load and to become more... Uh, uh, you know, water efficient as uh, as an area.
1: So, uh, as you look at our own city, what would be if you were a green build czar? <laughs> what would be the first thing you would pass?
0: As as far as Philadelphia mm-hmm. being more more green, there are so many opportunities here, and the city is uh, is uh, has a lot of assets already. But you know, to go the extra step. Uh, I think Philadelphia, instead of continuing to have uh, gas-fired power plants, Mm -hmm. you know, a a solar farm, Mm -hmm. uh, a wind farm. I mean, we're not that far from Delaware and Delaware Bay. It's windy down there all the time. You know, put some wind turbines down there and power Philadelphia that way instead of burning fossil fuels. That would be uh, also uh, the rivers here. Delaware and the Schuylkill are both navigable you know, the Schuylkill's navigable to uh, Fairmont uh, Park here, which used to be the yes. water plant. Uh, why not put in some water taxi systems so we can get around? As long as we can go across, you know, Market Street and across, maybe right. a circulator and connect the two. Uh, have an alternative to buses and – I mean, SEPTA's great, but, you know, SEPTA <laughs> only goes so far. So That's when, a great idea, right. Uh, you go to Rotterdam in Holland – and it's just amazing. You come into the airport, you go across the way, there's the train station. The train station allows the buses, the bicycles, the cars, everything to come in. On the other side of the train station is the canal. Right. It is the most right. multimodal place. And Philadelphia has the same natural features. So why can't we be like Rotterdam? We can. That's a
1: fantastic answer. So we've, we've all been thinking a lot. Both locally and nationally, about how we not just uh, green our cities, but green the planet. What can we do, sort of as a country, to move it forward? And so there are things like the Green New Deal that have been proposed um, by the current Congress. And I, I think slowly I, making its way.
0: I think uh, some of those champions for the Green New Deal are kind of like, uh, uh, you know, the canaries in the in the mm-hmm. coal mine, saying. Uh, we, we see the danger if we keep going down the present path. Um, I was about to say
1: that's an ominous illusion. Right? Well, Those uh, canaries
0: die. <laughs> we're, we're, well, we're, we're in tr- well you, the canary can be taken out on the shoulder of the miner if, uh, if we're careful about this. But the Green New Deal has real possibilities. Uh, lots of people could be employed. Uh, a lot of it has to do with the early adopters. Uh, some of us need incentives. Uh, I look at the uh, I look at the solar businesses that are all over the place, and I'm a fan of uh, solar businesses. It's much more prevalent in Germany, which is gloomy, rainy, cloudy a lot of the time. Here we have a lot Very more true. sunshine. Uh, solar could go really, really well in Philadelphia. Well, the problem is twofold. Uh, first is that we have a, a business model where these huge companies are coming in and we'll say, we'll rent you the solar. Um, you can't own it. We'll rent it to right. you and we'll take everything off the top and give you, yes, you lower your bills substantially, but you don't get the full benefit as if you know a local contractor could, could put, it, uh, put it together. I guess the second issue is with, uh, with greening mm-hmm. is that we need a lot better training on how people can go into this business, you know. uh, One of the things that's happened, not at the general contractor construction manager level, not at the full engineering level, but it's happened with the mechanical engineering firms and the mechanical contractors, they have figured out a way to say, if you hire us, we will come to your building. I'm talking about commercial. Understood. And we will help you operate that building for 20 years, 25 years. But you have to let us retrofit with this high seer, you know, the the government rating system for efficient systems. Let us put in new, uh, you know, train, carrier, Mitsubishi uh, units to heat and air condition your facility. And as long as you let us manage it, we'll give you all the records. Then you give us, you know, 10, 15 percent of your savings. You know, so the the owner is getting a huge benefit out of that. Now, how can we blow that up? How can we do that for all systems? I mean, how right scale?
1: now, we're only doing it on mechanical. Dr. Jeffrey Beard, thank you for being on the 10,000 Hours. My pleasure. Thank you. Drexel's 10,000 Hour Podcast is hosted by me, Maurice Baynard. Our producers are Sean Fitzpatrick and Nathan Barron.
0: Drexel's 10,000 Hours Podcast is powered by Drexel University Online.